This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. One weekday morning, just about three years ago, Our team on the Radio Hour and all of the New Yorker staff got an email right as we were heading to work. And it said, turn around and go home. The lockdown had begun. The pandemic reshaped all of our lives. And many did not survive it. Well over a million people in the United States have died. Around 7 million globally, according to the World Health Organization. The pandemic has eased considerably, but it is by no means over. And we have yet to assess the consequences for long-term health, mental health, education, politics, so many things. Dhruv Kular began writing for The New Yorker during the pandemic's most terrifying days, describing his experience as a physician in a New York City hospital. He spoke recently with senior public health officials, including the head of the CDC, about what we know now. Dhruv, it's almost three years since the pandemic began, and... It's time to assess what worked, what didn't, who got it right, who got it wrong. So can you tell from here and now what countries got the pandemic response right? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and an incredibly important question. And, you know, there's a number of caveats I think we should have up front. One is, you know, we don't have reliable data from every country. And so if you think about China, even today, you know, estimates say that, In the last two months, they've probably lost one to one and a half million lives, and the official count is somewhere in the tens of thousands. The other thing to note is that the response and who got it right changes over time. And so if you look at a snapshot from a year ago, it might look different from today. But I think, you know, three years into the pandemic, um, I think we can draw some conclusions. And I think the countries that got things right, the ones that, you know, spring to mind are many of the East Asian countries. So Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan. Um, There's also countries like New Zealand and Australia that did very well. And then you have maybe Denmark and Norway. And I think it really comes down to a few principal factors. So the first thing is you have to know where the virus is. The the countries that were able to test early have a test and trace uh, program in place and have uh, reliable reporting of that data 
they were able to mitigate the initial surges and along the way make sure that when a surge did come about, they were able to respond quickly. So I think the first thing is you got to know where the virus is and how to track it. The second one, I think, is something that's really been overlooked, um, but incredibly important. And that's this idea of trust. I think both interpersonal trust, but also trust in institutions. That is something I think no one will be surprised to hear that the U.S. Uh, is, is tremendously lacking in right now. But if you look at some countries like Japan uh, or South Korea, you know, Japan's constitution actually makes it very difficult for it to implement uh, the types of mandates that we even see in the United States. Lockdowns are kind of out of the question because of Japan's constitution. And they rely really on peer pressure. Uh, another way to think about that is social cohesion, social trust. You know, masks became known as, um, you know, face underpants. Like, you wouldn't <laughs> want to be in public without, um, you know, without your underpants on. You wouldn't want to be in public without your mask on. So you're saying that social cohesion may be a lot more important than mandates and even work better than mandates. That doesn't really bode well for us, does it? Did other places try to forego mandates? Did they turn out to be effective? You know, there are other... Uh, countries, you know, early on the United Kingdom, Sweden, that took a much more laissez-faire approach to the pandemic, and they did not fare well um, during the early phase of the pandemic and actually pivoted to um, to, to, to a more kind of mainline response in which they did rely on some of these things. The question of mandates is, is a really complicated one. You know, on the one hand, um, vaccine mandates, for instance, seem to work. More people do get vaccinated uh, when you mandate it. It also has a lot of downstream social and economic consequences. I mean, some people lose their jobs because of it. Um, trust in public health institutions may go down. It may be diff- more difficult to uh, address the next pandemic. Um, and then, you know, with masks, the issue is even more kind of challenging. Whether you wear a mask and how well you wear a mask and what type of mask you wear actually makes a huge difference. The kind of willingness to properly adhere to a mask mandate or mask encouragement is actually more important than the mandate itself. Mandates seem to have encouraged political division here in the U.S. Blue states typically favored mandates along with more stringent lockdown measures. And conservative leaders tended to focus more on the health of businesses and keeping kids in school. What can we say now about the success of those various approaches? You know, what states were most successful depends on the metric that you're going to use to define success in part. It might be helpful or might be instructive to to look at two different reports uh, that, that came out in recent months. You know, one is from the Commonwealth Fund. Um, it's a, it's a you know, prestigious, well-respected um, uh, healthcare philanthropy. It ranks Hawaii as number one. It ranks Massachusetts as number two, places that few people would dispute that they had low death rates and they have an excellent public health system. Those are the bluest of the blue states. Hawaii has a certain geographical advantage. Um, I think there's a couple interesting wrinkles here. So so one is that Utah also ranked very highly. Uh, not a blue state. Yeah. Not a blue state at all. Um, and then if you look at other studies, now there's, a, there's a big study from a, from a more conservative-leaning uh, group of researchers from places like, you know, the Heritage Foundation and the University of Chicago. Th- what they try to do is put COVID death rates in a broader context. So they've said, look, we're going to take COVID death rates, um, we're going to adjust them for things like obesity and diabetes, we're going to introduce economic factors. So how, how much did your GDP shrink or grow during the pandemic? What was your unemployment over that time? And then importantly, we're also going to look at education. In their analysis, Hawaii drops down to something like 40. And so the reason for that is, as you said, you know, Hawaii is an island. Um, it is, uh, has certain geographic advantages, but 
its economy also took a hit uh, because it's so reliant on tourism. A lot of students spend a lot of time out of the classroom in Hawaii. Uh, when they come up with their calculation, they again, they find Utah is the, the place that is the number one state, at least according to their analysis. Why Utah? What did Utah do that made it successful? But I think one of the most interesting things about Utah is, you know, we think of it as a red state, but it is actually kind of a unique red state. I mean, if you look at the current governor, for instance, Spencer Cox, uh, he has described himself as a liberal Republican. I think a lot of their policies during the pandemic actually reflected that type of more moderate atmosphere. You know, I came across a, a survey a couple years ago that I thought kind of encapsulates um, some of this. The survey basically found that Utah was probably the best state in the country to lose your wallet in. And and the idea there is that there's a very high level of social trust in Utah. Uh, and other work uh, from Oxford, for instance, has found that the countries that have the highest levels of social trust uh, actually had some of the best pandemic responses. And we see that kind of in a microcosm here. What did we learn about schools, opening them, closing them? What should we do next time? The main takeaway is schools should be the last thing that close during any emergency, including a pandemic. And so uh, overall, there was some risk of transmission in schools, but it was relatively low. Um, There were states that had relatively short school closures, and they did quite well when it came to pandemic-related outcomes. And so I think, you know, the, the school conversation is one that's so important because it affects so many lives and has a huge bearing on how students do in the short and the long term. But you got a lot of resistance from teachers and teachers unions. Yeah. And, and part of that is, you know, we didn't know as much as we do now. It's totally reasonable to, you know, in the moment, Omicron hits, it's the most infectious thing that's come around, um, you know, in decades, if not more than a century. And to, to, to be alarmed and be concerned that a lot of that transmission may occur in schools. So I, I, that impulse is by no means uh, something that I would dismiss. But now we have kind of the benefit of hindsight and we should think about it differently. Dhruv Kular writes for The New Yorker on public health. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic as it goes into year four. We'll continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. 
Hi, I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Ron DeSantis is going to run for president almost surely. And beyond the issues that he hammers away in terms of cultural issues, he also hammers away at COVID and claims that he had a fantastically great record on COVID in the state of Florida. Is he right or is he wrong? The unsatisfying answer is that he's partially right and partially wrong. I mean, Florida is by no means an outlier uh, in terms of a brilliant pandemic response. Uh, Neither is an outlier in terms of a horrific pandemic response. You know, they took a different tack from states like New York and California, but ended up in a similar state. If you look at things like deaths from COVID per capita or infection rates, you know, I think some of that is actually driven by the vaccination rates. I mean, Florida, um, as a state in the southeast, actually has relatively high vaccination rates, and that's particularly true uh, around uh, older people. The U.S., globally speaking, fared pretty badly in its response to the pandemic. We all remember the lack of preparedness, the lack of PPE and ventilators and more, and the really, I'm sorry, but the unhinged rhetoric of Donald Trump. We remember that all too well. The Centers for Disease Control came in for a lot of criticism, too. You spoke recently with Rochelle Walensky, who took over the CDC about a year into the pandemic. What are the kind of concrete steps that you feel um, CDC needs to take and is taking to, to transform its culture to be, be more effective in the next pandemic? I came as a consumer to CDC, a consumer of um, CDC guidance, um, and that was sort of how I spent the first year of the pandemic, um, and really have now taken this opportunity to do a full um, review. And among the things that we learned is we need to move our science faster. Not only are we clearing our papers faster, and we've decreased our average clearance time by about 50% since I got here, but we've also been releasing our data really in real time so that people can really understand upon what data our guidelines are based. Um, We need to have guidance that is implementable on the ground, sometimes with options for how to implement, because in fact, it may work differently in Manhattan than it needs to work in Indian country. That our communication has to be um, more targeted in plain language to the American people because all of a sudden people were coming to us. Where CDC prior to the pandemic was communicating largely with academic partners and with state health officer partners and public health partners. Um, And so we at CDC have to be sure that we are delivering um, our information in digestible plain language because our audience has changed broadly. You know, I want to get at, at the tension there. I mean, trust in public health is so incredibly important, and getting out ahead of your skis, so to speak, um, you know, does that undermine trust in some ways if, if you get it wrong on the first pass? 
I've published enough of my share of papers to know that you generally know the answer before the ink is dry on the publication. We need to find that sweet spot where we believe this is um, as good a data that we're, as we're going to have for some period of time, that it is cl- as close to the right data as we are going to get in this moment. I can tell you from my vantage point, there's nothing more frustrating than needing to make an important decision, knowing that the data exists, but I can't see it that I would make a better decision if I had more data at my fingertips upon which to make that decision. Right now, it's not well known, but CDC relies on voluntary reporting from these jurisdictions. Yeah. You know, I do want to ask you about about trust and, and about polarization as well. How do you contend with the fact that we are a deeply polarized society when you're also trying to be nonpartisan? I have never walked at a patient's bedside and asked them how they voted before I delivered care. (laughs) Um, It is the case that this country right now is my patient. You know, scientific discussion, noble scientific discussion that is generally reserved for scientific meetings plays out on the evening news and is um, consumed by audiences that don't necessarily understand the intricacies. Um, And what they want is a unified voice and a unified message. And that has been one of the challenges of this time. But you have people with real power. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene now sits on the House Committee that's investigating the COVID response, and she has spread vaccine misinformation. How are you thinking about contending with that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think mis- and disinformation is is something that we're addressing here at CDC. I think it's larger than CDC. I think it's larger than the U.S. government. One of the things I will tell folks is sort of these are the data that are out there. Um, these are data that CDC has published. But importantly, these are data that have been peer-reviewed in the New England Journal of Medicine, in independent um, scientific review processes. And oftentimes when people don't necessarily want to trust or don't feel as if they can trust a government source, I will send them to another independent source, a medical society or someplace else that is sometimes consistent, um, largely consistent, but not always 100% consistent with what um, where our guidance is. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to ask a couple questions about, about vaccines. And given kind of some of the backlash to uh, vaccine mandates and mass mandates, you know, were, in your mind, you know, mandates the right way to go? I mean, is that something that, that, that you would have implemented again in hindsight? Hindsight's hard because um, you're operating with the data that you had at the time. If we rewind where we were at that period of time, I was working in a hospital that had a a morgue, an an extra morgue sitting outside the hospital that I walked by. And I know many New York healthcare workers were doing the same. So when you think about where you were at the time and what we were working to do incrementally to get more and more of society able to be opened, um, those were were extraordinary times, and they merited extraordinary measures for those times. Um, we're in a different place right now, and so I think you know having conversations about mandates is is a different kind of conversation. Drew, I I don't think we heard a very clear answer from Rochelle Walensky of the CDC about the political consequences of mandates or how to tackle vaccine misinformation. I mean, can we defeat a pandemic? If people innately don't really trust the public health system and refuse vaccination? I don't think the CDC or really anyone has a clear sense of how to address those factors which play a huge role in our ability to respond to to a crisis like COVID-19. You know, one of the the people that I spoke to during this reporting was Zika Manuel, 
He's a really well-known policy wonk. He was on the COVID-19 advisory board for Biden's transition team. He really emphasized to me that this sort of mistrust has a lot of serious downstream consequences, and they go much beyond just how high your vaccination rate is. We are in a phase in American uh, life. Uh, We attack experts and we pretend like we don't need them. And unfortunately, uh, that is, uh, it's a dangerous idea, (laughs) Uh, especially in a more technical, technological, complex world. You need expertise. Um, It's also uh, dangerous at the bureaucracy level because people who are technically expert get attacked. And this is extremely, extremely dangerous for the country's ability to respond to future emergencies, but also just future normal operations. You need a lot of experts and a lot of expertise, whether it's demographics, it's modeling, it's vaccine evaluation and development. You just need lots of different people with different skills. You know, you see it in in the attacks on Tony Fauci. Here's a guy who's given 50 plus years of his life to the federal government. He could have easily left at any time for prestige positions, whether in academia or in industry. And he didn't. He kept working. I think uh, if we keep attacking people like that, it's going to be hard to have civil servants who are going to want to work hard and be dedicated. That's Zeke Emanuel, an expert in public health policy, talking with The New Yorker's Dhruv Kular. Dhruv is a physician at Weill Cornell Medical College here in New York City, and you can read him on the pandemic and much more at newyorker.com. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll join us next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Ngofen Mputabuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.